Hello and welcome to Bad Gaze, a podcast all about evil and complicated queer people in history. My name's Hugh Lemmy, I'm a writer and author. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, historian and member of the board of the Schwulis Museum in Berlin. Last week we discussed a nice Midwestern Lutheran girl who ended up joining a urban guerrilla gang. Who are we talking about this week, Ben? Well, I want to start by describing a photograph to you, uh, and it's a photograph that was taken by the photographer Brissai um, in a, a very stylish nightclub in 1920s Paris. Uh, we see in the photograph uh, two people, uh, one uh, in a very uh, elegant, silky, draped evening gown with the waved hair and emphatic coal eyeliner of a uh, 1920s starlet. And the other person uh, is wearing a suit and tie, has their hair slicked back, uh, is in uh, what we might call a men's suit jacket with a pocket square, uh, has their arm around uh, the other one, uh, and uh, the other hand reaching for a pack of cigarettes on the table next to the wine glasses. Um, and we're going to be talking today about the person in the suit, um, a person named Violet Morris, or Violette Morris, uh, who was an outstanding French athlete who won dozens of medals in international competition before being banned from competing in sports due to her violation of moral standards. So far, so lesbian. Uh, but what makes her story more complicated and more troubling is that during World War II, she was accused of collaboration with the Nazis and the Vichy regime, and she was killed in a hail of bullets in 1944 in a resistance-led ambush. Well, that's quite it's, a romantic life, no? It's quite a romantic life. Um, it's still unclear, uh, and we'll get into this later in the episode, uh, the extent of her collaboration. Certain things are known, certain things are not known, uh, and there's a fight between historians uh, and between people who've thought about her life about how much they want to assume that Violette actually did uh, and how much she was held to account um, basically on the basis of her having been such a uh, controversial figure uh, earlier in her life. So she was born in 1893 in Paris, and she was the sixth daughter of Baron Pierre-Jacques Maurice and a woman named Elisabeth Sakakini, who came from an elite Arab family in Jerusalem. She was educated in a convent, um, and in the convent, the physical education classes were taught by imported British governesses. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. I can imagine like a Mrs. Trunchbull, no? Yes. Well, Violet herself was a, was a, a Trunchbull-like physique. Um, as a girl, she excelled at boxing, javelin, shot put, and swimming, and coined the motto, anything a man can do, Violette can do too. Great. By the time uh, she was an adult, uh, at only five foot five, she had 14 inch biceps and a 16 inch neck. Uh, <laughs> the development. Wow. Yeah. So a real athlete, a born athlete. Yeah. I mean, that's a born athlete. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, of many kinds. Um, she, at the age of 20, married a man uh, named Cyprien. It seems to have been an arranged marriage. Uh, but shortly after World War I began, uh, when her boxing gym was transformed into a Red Cross center, she, uh, apparently preferring adventure to life at home with her husband, signed on to become an ambulance driver and courier and ended up serving at the battles of Verdun and the Somme. And she, at this point, discovered her love of uh, fast cars and fast driving uh, over rough and dangerous terrain past the trenches, collecting stretchers of bloody soldiers. And the faster you could get the wounded soldiers to the field hospitals, the more likely their chance of survival was. Uh, and actually, and a, remarkable, a, a remarkably dangerous job, ambulance driving in the First World War. They had a very, very high death rate um, and took you know, immense bravery. Um, a lot of people who were conscientious objectors in the First World War ended up becoming ambulance drivers, and they were sort of mocked for being cowards, but actually, you know, you're not in a trench when you're in an ambulance. Yeah, it was very, very dangerous work, and also work done by some other um, queer luminaries at the time, uh, like the French composer Maurice Ravel. Um, and so they discovered that she was, and she discovered that she was very good at driving and very fearless. Um, and uh, after the war, uh, now wars 
are always times, at least in the 20th century, um, or at least the two world wars rather, uh, are always time, are both times when um, gender and sexuality roles get completely upended. Uh, people are removed from their homes. They are placed into homosocial environments. Um, women are given certain traditionally masculine quote unquote tasks because the um, gender division of labor can't survive in a situation when so many uh, able-bodied men have been sent off to the trenches. Um, and after both world wars uh, in some of the cities that the people who were upended by those wars then settle in, um, there are a lot of people who uh, come back and basically say, well, I don't want to go back to that. Um, and so end up kind of continuing uh, their homosocial or even kind of queer uh, ways of living. And not just and so after the- not just homosocial as well. Though I mean, like um, the the real um, thing that 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 won the case, I guess, for the the um, suffragettes and the suffragists uh, in Edwardian England was the First World War and the, and the role that women took, and, and it was immediately after that um, that that universal suffrage uh, of a type was granted. Absolutely, um, and just a, an anecdote from a from a different war in a different time but um there was apparently in the 1940s uh during the um during the second world war when dwight eisenhower was the commander of uh, allied forces in europe uh and there was an organization called the women's army corps uh, of women who could enlist in the army uh in a non-combat roles and Someone apparently uh, had raised the problem with Eisenhower, the question with Eisenhower of lesbianism in the Women's Army Corps. And uh, Eisenhower calls in the head of the Women's Army Corps and says, well, I'm hearing these terrible rumors. There's lesbians in the Women's Army Corps. You know, we have to root them out. This is your task. And she said, well, if you start rooting out the lesbians in the Army Corps, start with me, I quit. And they couldn't because they, you know, they had to, they had to win the war. They had to. They had to do it. And then, of course, immediately afterward, um, there were huge purges uh, in all different kinds of state service. And so, Violet Morris is one of these people who, uh, after a war spent, um, you know, driving ambulances fast and and being a kind of hero, um, she then returns to uh, Paris and has to choose between uh, her husband and her marriage, or her trousers. And um, she chose the trousers, the trousers from her Red Cross uniform, uh, which became a staple. And from that point on, she would almost always wear trousers in public. And at this time, France still had Napoleonic laws that prohibited women from wearing pants in public. Wow. Now, this is the moment. Yeah. They still had Napoleonic era laws prohibiting women from wearing pants in public. And this was not that surprises me I, until... Sorry, I was going to say, that surprised me. Because I thought, like, part of Napoleonic reforms were removing a lot of those sort of... Um, moral strictures in terms of, you know, like it was Napoleonic laws know that, that decriminalized homosexuality in France in the first place, which is why in a lot of our cases in Victorian England, when gay men were, were, were being arrested or uh, persecuted, they, they went and lived in Paris or, or the south of France. Yes. Uh, at the same time, there still were uh, these gender clothing restrictions, which persist in a lot of places for a long time. Uh, the law, even... So the law that they're actually writing people up for, even as late as Stonewall in the States, when they're arresting people there, is the law that forced you to wear X number of clothes appropriate to your sex, quote unquote. Um, right. And so that's, that remains the basis of, of a lot of this stuff. And so at this point, uh, this is when sport really comes to the center of her life. And she was an all-round athlete and participated whether there were women's teams or not. Um, she was a discus thrower. She did shot put. She played water polo in the men's national team. She boxed, including against men, against whom she often won. And she played in two Parisian soccer teams from 1917 to 19 for Femina Sport and for 1920 to 1926 for Olympique de Paris and also for the French national women's team. She rode street bikes, she rode motorcycles, she learned to fly, she did aerial acrobatics, she rode, she played tennis, and she swam, and she was ambitious and very successful in all of it. In 1921 and 1922, for example, she won gold medals in javelin and shot put at the Women's World Games, which was the replacement at that time for the Olympics because women were not allowed to compete. Uh, she won gold in shot put and discus throw at the 1924 Women's Olympiad in London. 
Um, three years later, she won the 24-hour French car race, the Bol d'Or, in which she had competed for the first time in 1922. Um, and she was also very successful in Paris, Pyrenees, Paris, and Paris-Nice uh, races. And uh, car racing became such a love of hers that she underwent an elective mastectomy to remove her breasts so that it was easier for her to fit into the tight cockpit of a racing car. Oh, wow. And that is also the basis for the claims of some people that we should be thinking about Violette Morris more through a trans lens than through a lesbian bush mm. lens. And we'll talk about that later in the episode. I think there is a, I think it's a very compelling argument. And so the historian Anseba uh, refers to her as the first female all-round sports person that France had ever produced. And she really was kind of at the beginning of this really glittering career. Um, she was also a very colorful and public figure outside the world of sports. She ignored uh, the female role requirements, quote unquote, from the newly created organization, the Fédération Féminine Sportive de France, the, the French Federation of Women's Sports. She wore men's clothes, she drove a motorcycle, she was a chain smoker, three packs of cigarettes a day, and was openly lesbian. Now, being butch in 1920s Europe was hard, but in cities like Paris, there were thriving queer scenes, and they weren't even that far underground. Um, lesbians could meet, drink, dance, etc., in bars like Le Monocle, which is where Versailles snapped the picture of Morris with her date, uh, with which I opened the episode that I opened the episode by describing. She was also known as an absolute filthy mouth uh, cursor who could just wear up a streak. <laughs> Sorry, I'm still thinking about the idea that you could win a women's Olympiad and smoke three packs of fags a day. It's really impressive. <laughs> I know lesbians have smoked plenty of fags in their day. Um, it's like those like, old stories about um, taking a break in the middle of a cricket match for a pint of beer. Yeah, I mean, the I think athletics were different is, in those days. I think I think this has been a sort of post, um, like post nineteen eighties, like change in the way that athletics and uh, sports in general is run. People become these like major prof- professional athletes compared to you know, like footballers in the nineteen seventies who you know have a fry up and a pint and then go and you know play in the FA Cup final or something. Yeah, I think it's become much more. It's become much more sort of regimented as as the pursuit of breaking records goes kind of further and further and further and further. And the inclusion uh, of money and sponsorship as well, I guess. And the inclusion of money and sponsorship, and and, and there's also there's just a pressure to always do more, um, right? Everyone wants to break a record. Everyone wants to, and so it's it's now at a point where it's so the amateur athletics in this way are not so old, right? Um, Violet Morris is participating in some of the first amateur athletic organizations for women. Um, you know, the first, the return of the modern Olympic games is in the late 19th century. I mean, it is a late 19th century uh, invention and creation uh, of this kind of team sport. Because before then, um, you know, you don't do anything with your body you don't have to do, right? So aristocrats are supposed to just kind of sit around and, and become uh, rotund and corpulent, um, and the only people who are kind of leathery and tanned and built are the peasants, uh, right. because they're the ones who actually have to work. Um, and so, and then uh, you know, once the leisuring classes then develop the idea that they that they want to be um, that they're that they're kind of losing their connection with the body, um, and then they try to sort of build and regiment and shape the body, and that's and that's kind of where. Um, where this kind of amateur athletics come from. It's also uh, part of like then, a sort of modernist movement, right? And like the, the, the modernist movements, um, uh, political movements as well, developing a sort of uh, real concern of the body as uh, reflective of the health of the nation in general. And um, and so like the both both fascist movements, but also the Soviet movements were, were really quite obsessed with stuff like mass games um, group exercise, um, a healthy body became part of, um, yeah, like this, mm-hmm. uh, attempt to deal with or address, um, the sort of, uh, immoral and, um, degrading effects of urbanization and industrialization. That's it. That's it precisely because no longer, no longer were the masses working in, a quote unquote, state of nature all day out in the fields, they were now crowding in uh, urban environments and working in factories. And, uh, yeah. you know, that, that's, that's where some of these ideas start to come from. Um, but I think, yeah, that, you know, the, the, um, in the 1920s, I'm not saying that the athletes didn't do incredible things, they didn't work very hard, but, you know, it sufficed to be the best runner 
in France. And then you were the best runner in France. Whereas now, if you want to be the best runner in France, that's something for which you're selected at the age of, you know, four. There's a few people who are kind of candidates for the person who's going to be the best runner in France. And then from that point on, everything in your life is designed to shave those milliseconds off of your time at the national championships. Yeah. Uh, whereas at this time, it's like, hey, I feel like flying a plane. Woo! You know, <laughs> it's uh, all a little bit looser. My, um, my, I was just thinking, so my, my grandfather in the 1930s, he used to tell me that he was a member of a biking group in, in Manchester. And he would work, you know, five or six days a week uh, in a, he worked in a tripe factory, which was big in Manchester, the tripe industry. And then he'd cycle with his friends on a Sunday to the Lake District, which is, I mean, it's, it's an hour and a half, two hours on a train away. Uh, today on you know a fast train so so obviously like this was um uh they they there was also like a different attitude towards health in in certain certain ways at that time to do with politics as well which weren't necessarily entirely like this nationalistic thing it was like really the chance of freedom or something on, on your day off absolutely and so Morris, uh, through all of these exploits, becomes embraced by the intellectual and bohemian Paris of the mid-1920s. Um, she had a few uh, famous love affairs, the most famous with uh, the famous slash infamous Josephine Baker. Oh, wow. Do you, do you know anything about Josephine Baker? Yeah, Carl von Vechten was a big fan. Um, she was Absolutely. A, she was she was American dancer. She was black and... There was, a, there was a, she, she sort of developed this craze, I guess, as an early sort of modernist dance craze in, uh, in Paris in the 1920s, which was um, yeah. extremely problematically inflected in terms of, in terms of race and dance and uh, these, these sort of ideas, but was very, very influential for, for modernist, the modernist movement in Europe as well. And Josephine Baker is somebody who I would love to profile at some point, but we could never do her on our show because Josephine Baker is a hero her entire life. Oh, yeah. Not a bad uh, gain anyway. Baker is, Baker is born in uh, 1906 in St. Louis. Uh, she then moves to Paris in the early 1920s. She becomes the first black woman to star in a major motion picture, which is 1927's Siren of the Tropics. She was the most celebrated headliner at the Folie Bergère, and in uh, 1927, she performed in a review called Un Vent de Folie uh, in a costume which consisted only of a short skirt of artificial bananas and a single beaded necklace. And that Jesus. image of her in the banana skirt became an iconic image and a sort of symbol of the jazz age. She was celebrated by and painted by many artists uh, and intellectuals. She was herself an intellectual. Um, she was dubbed the Black Venus, the Black Pearl, the Bronze Venus, and the Creole Goddess. In 1937, she married a French industrialist, Jean Lyon, um, and uh, raised her children in uh, Paris, in France, um, but during the war ended up guiding the French resistance uh, and doing some sort of spectacular acts of bravery. She housed people in her home uh, who were fleeing and uh, helping the free French effort. She would write invisible ink, write in invisible ink, uh, coded notes on her sheet music. Um, she toured the French colonies, uh, helping the resistance uh, and taking notes um, in her underwear <laughs> through uh, enemy checkpoints. Um, while doing that work, she ended up developing an incredibly severe infection that required a hysterectomy. After the war, she managed to, uh, she got the Croix de Guerre and the Rosette of the Resistance. She was made a Chevalier of the Legion of Honor of France by Charles de Gaulle. And then she returned to performance, uh, continued to be a leading performer in the 1950s and 1960s, uh, became somewhat of a celebrity in the United States as well, where she would always refuse to uh, perform for segregated audiences. And then in 1968, when Martin Luther King was assassinated, Coretta Scott King offered her um, the kind of position of unofficial leader or role model of the civil rights movement in the United States. Uh, a role which she turned down in order to protect her children because she was worried that she was um, she was worried that, that she would be assassinated if she took that if she took that on. Um, Josephine Baker once said at a civil rights speech in 1963, uh, this was at the March on Washington, at which she was the only official female speaker. Um, she said this, I have walked into the palaces of kings and queens and into the houses of presidents and much more, but I could not walk into a hotel in America and get a cup of coffee, and that made me mad. And when I get mad, you know that I open my big mouth and then look out. Because when Josephine opens her mouth, they hear it all over the world. Amazing. 
Baker also had relationships with uh, Bessie Smith, George Simenon, um, Ada Smith, the novelist Colette, and possibly Frida Kahlo. What a life. So that's Josephine Baker. Uh, Violet Morris uh, didn't have the good sense to keep Josephine Baker, uh, and so actually left her for the theater actress Yvonne Debray, who was a favorite of the uh, writer and director and fellow good gay Jean Cocteau, who became one of Morris's uh, closest friends during this time. And just to get an image of what Violet Morris was like at a, at a competition, uh, one of her fellow competitors, Helene Delangle, who's another female race car driver, uh, said that uh, Morris was quite intimidating. She said Morris, quote, marched around her vast Donet car like a policeman on duty, cigarette glued to the corner of her mouth as she barked out orders at a kneeling mechanic, turning as if she could sense the watchful eye of her competitors. Um, and this is obviously not the image of the sportswoman that the uh, French Federation of Female Athletes particularly wants to promote. Um, this is a federation that was intended to promote the idea of sports for women, uh, which at that time was a controversial and progressive um, idea. But it promoted this idea under the rubric of it being a healthy discipline, that sport would uh, make young girls better mothers, that it would give them rosy cheeks, that it was something they could do while they were young and it would make them more healthy so that they could have more children. Um, Women's sports often in the late 19th century focused more on correct posture and facial and bodily beauty um, than on uh, athletic accomplishment or prowess. Uh, activities tended to be, before the turn of the century, more recreational than sports-specific, non-competitive, um, ruleless. Uh, and this is also a time in which uh, scientists are uh, having a really difficult and misogynistic time understanding how female anatomy and reproduction works. Um, the historian Kathleen E. McCrone, who wrote the book Playing the Game, Sport, and the Physical Emancipation of English Women, 1870 to 1914, um, describes a time when a woman's ovaries and uterus were believed to control her mental and physical health. She says, quote, on the basis of no scientific evidence whatsoever, they related biology to behavior. Um, physical effort, McCrone writes, like running, jumping, and climbing might damage their reproductive organs and make them unattractive to men. Forbid. This is also a time when it was thought that women only had a finite amount of vital activity and that sports like activities like sports or even higher education could drain women's energy from their reproductive capabilities, which would mean that women couldn't have children or their offspring would be inferior because they couldn't get the energy they needed. They'd be worn out by 35. They just have to sleep for the rest of their lives because <laughs> they, 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 they've played too much tennis. Exactly. Famously, Billie Jean King at the age of 35 just, you know, <laughs> lay down for a nap from which he's never awoken. Uh, this is also a time at which menstruation, uh, which is something that happens for women once a month, um, or for people with uh, uteruses uh, once a month, um, is a big impediment to this kind of participation. Doctors were doctors would caution against participating in any physical activity while you were bleeding, and they would prescribe rest cures. And so uh, working class women uh, had very little access to reproductive health, and middle and upper class women uh, just had to like spend a week a month in bed, basically, or were told that's what they had to do. Um, so it was upper class women who began to push for women's inclusion in sports competition. Um, Upper-class women began to participate in sports like tennis and golf at country clubs, uh, which helped make these activities more socially acceptable. Um, four years after the launch of the modern Olympics, uh, 22 women were included, but only in the sailing, croquet, and equestrian competitions. They were also allowed to play a women's only uh, game of lawn golf. Lawn golf, okay. <laughs> Do you think you could make the, uh, the uh, Spanish national lawn golf team, Hugh? Um, <clears throat> no, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, yeah, you, uniquely terrible at all sports. I'm a friend. Me too. That's why we make this show. Um, like everyone we've spoken about, except Violet Morris, this is, this is a change for us. Usually we talk about how terrible they are at sports and how much they hated it. And they just wanted to hide behind their mother's skirts and paint <laughs> and watercolors. Um, the competition uh, in that first uh, modern Olympics that, uh, that women were allowed to participate in was very small. In fact, some of the women there didn't know they were competing in the Olympics. Um, 
1920, um, things have started to progress a bit. At this point, 22% of colleges and universities in the United States did offer some kind of women's athletic program. Um, but a lot of physical educators at this time really objected to women's competitive sports uh, and wanted to replace, and in many cases successfully did replace, women's competition at the collegiate level with exercise classes and game days. So this is still this uh, persistent belief that vigorous exercise was detrimental to uh, childbearing. Um, women who swam, uh, swimming was an area, and this is something that Morris did as well, uh, was one of the earlier areas where women could compete. Uh, one of the reasons why it was uh, more successful, that women were able to get into it sooner, is because people couldn't see them sweat, uh, which means it didn't look as physically strenuous. Uh, and you know, your hair doesn't get messed up, or it gets messed up in this one particular kind of way. Um, this is why aquatics events for women were introduced in the 1912 Olympic Games as the first kind of racing event that women were allowed to compete in. Uh, but uh, so bizarre, still, like these such bizarre, weird, like rules that are half moral, half half aesthetic. You know that like oh, that women shouldn't sweat. But this is how uh, this is women had to work around a lot of. Uh, different kind of gender norms in order to train. Uh, beaches at this time often required that women wear stockings. You know how you like to wear your stockings to the beach? Um, <laughs> and so the members of the Women's Swimming Association uh, would have to uh, swim out into the ocean wearing their stockings, remove them underwater, and leave them drying on the rocks. And then they would return to the rocks, untie the stockings, put the sopping wet, put the stockings <laughs> back on underwater, and then emerge so that they, when they emerged onto the shore, they were wearing their stockings and not showing, uh, you know, legs. Bizarre. You'd love to see it. Um, the, in 1916, the Amateur Athletic Union International Sporting Organization held its first uh, championships for women in swimming. Uh, and in 1923, the United States had its first uh, American track and field championships for women. Um, Many uh, suffragettes and other kind of early feminist activists were very in favor of women's sports. Uh, Susan B. Anthony said, for example, quote, bicycling has done more to emancipate women than anything else in the world. Uh, I stand and rejoice every time I see a woman ride on a wheel. It gives women a feeling of freedom and self-reliance. This does really show you like just how, I guess, how socially shocking Violet's behavior must have been in terms of like, you know, if less than a couple of decades after, you know, women first being allowed to swim because God forbid we believe that women might, you know, perspire. Um, there she is, you know, like chain smoking, you know, sat on the, the radiator of her um, new sports car in her, in her red cross trousers, you know, with her hair slicked back and her girlfriend on her arm. who's also Josephine Baker, you know, like it must've been <laughs> complete, completely mind blowing to like that, that generation to have seen such a, a huge revolution in, um, social attitudes. It was, it was completely mind-blowing, and uh, that's part of why I'm going so far into the history of women's sports, because um, as I'll explain, she had a conflict, a major conflict with the French National Sporting Women's Association, and I'm laying out, you know, in that conflict, the, the, that French National Association is very much on the kind of uh, conservative side, you might say, uh, but I just want to lay out how radical even that association was, which I think goes to explain why uh, they, goes pretty far to explain why they were so eager to enforce certain kinds of uh, rules of participation. Um, one very important uh, person to mention if we're talking about the history of early 20th century women's athletics in the, in the West is uh, a woman named Clelia Dual Mosher, uh, who was a biology PhD the University of Wisconsin, obviously one of the first of those, um, who conducted the first ever American study on female sexuality in 1892, um, and who spent her career surveying uh, and studying women's physiology uh, to break down some of these assumptions that, you know, uh, women have uh, exactly, uh, you know, <laughs> women can either have four babies or run two 100-meter dashes, yeah. and you have to pick you want to do they've got 150 kilometers walking in their life and when they're done they're done <laughs> so um the federation uh french federation of women's sports is uh, founded by a woman named alice milliat alice milliat who founds it in 1921 
Uh, and it's that organization that hosts the first Women's Olympics in 1922. And it was at those games that women for the first time competed in physically strenuous events like the thousand meter race and the shot put. Um, the success of that event uh, got a huge amount of pushback from the athletic establishment, including the International Olympic Committee. Um, in 1926, they, um, they uh, successfully demanded that they stop using the word Olympics for the women's games. They said to call them the women's games. Um, however, in exchange for that, the International Olympic Committee agreed to add some track and field events to the 1926 Amsterdam Games. Um, and the longest race that women were allowed to run in those games was the 800-meter dash, uh, and this proved to be a, a horrible setback for women's athletics because guess what? When you take a picture of female competitors or male competitors uh, after running the 800-meter dash as fast as they possibly can, they are sweaty and out of breath. Um, and even though the men didn't look any better, um, spectators were shocked. Uh, the distance was perceived as being far too much for women. Um, in the words of one newspaper headline, the racers were, quote, 11 wretched women. And this backlash was okay. so big that women were not allowed to run 800-meter uh, races in the Olympics until guess what year, Hugh? Um, 1936? 1960. Fucking hell. It's... Um the, the the first um woman to run in a marathon was like like 1970s or something um and, yeah, and then it, even that she did it by by cheating by signing on with, well not by cheating but by by signing on with her just her initials you know without giving her gender and um i listened to an amazing documentary about it, in fact and uh, and the race officials chased after her and and tried to bundle her off the uh, off the, the pitch i think it was the chicago marathon or something Boston it was marathon. the Boston Marathon. Yeah. It was the Boston Marathon, which I know because the Boston Marathon's route runs uh, less than a five minutes walk from my childhood home. Oh, I'm um, sorry you, and, you you were forced to enjoy seeing all those wretched, sweaty <laughs> women. <laughs> and you know, but it's good because a five minute walk from the home, my mother could take me down without uh, exhausting her reserves of energy. <laughs> that <it brings. laughs> I mean, this is bloody um, awful, though. I mean, like. Um, I know we're well, laughing, I guess, I guess we'll get terrible. on to discussing it further, but it's this, it's this very strange idea, like um, completely ascientific, but also, um, I mean, deeply conservative and patriarchal about what women are and anything. Women have to be prevented from doing things that might manifest that this is not who women are, even though they are women who can who are doing it. You know, it's like these. Um, it, it's it's extremely bizarre. Um, uh, I mean, I guess un, unusual for. Uh, sorry, usual, in fact, common for, for that, this sort of patriarchal society at the time, but, um, well, even today, in fact. But, uh, yeah, the, the, but the, like, the, it's like a no-true like Scotsman thing. Like, women can't do this, and if they do do this, they're not real women. Um, and, you know, it sort of plays, plays back on itself. And, and so we got to, you know, women don't sweat, so we have to stop them running the 800 metres because then they sweat, and then that shows that women sweat, which women don't do, so they're not women. It's this weird recursive, um, recursive oppression or something. Absolutely. And so here's an example of that. Um, physical educators um, normally, uh, or uh, physicians normally, didn't see uh, the middle and upper class women who were the patients of physicians at this time uh, sweating or breathing rapidly. And so when women then did something that involved some athletic endurance, like run 300, 400, 500 meters, when they finished, they would be sweating and rapidly breathing. And that created the idea that 200 meters was the farthest a woman should run because then she would unduly exert herself. Um, and like the eugenics to which this view of women is very closely related, um, what all of this points out is um, the fallibility of science and of the scientific process, right? That, that science is uh, as good as the questions that you ask it. Um, and if the questions that you're asking uh, or the categories with which you're operating uh, are so uh, predetermined uh, and, uh, and restrictive uh, as to inevitably lead to these kinds of answers, then you will end up uh, not with, um, as Magnus Hirschfeld would say, through science to liberation, but you will end up with science that constructs um, these elaborate justifications for the continuation of some really horrible and oppressive gender practices. Um, 
So just to recap where we are, uh, we have uh, one person and one organization. Our person is a foul-mouthed, hair-slicked-back, dating Josephine Baker, chain-smoking, race car-driving, uh, elective mastectomy to fit better behind the wheel, shot-put-throwing, 14-inch biceps, butch. And our organization is a group of nice middle-class ladies who are uh, working in a very earnest and uh, important fashion uh, to prove that participating in athletics is not going to turn women into some kind of uh, non-reproductive lesbian monsters. How do you think this played out? Um, I'm guessing terribly and probably Violet probably came off the worst for it. I, I, this is a classic case of like, um, uh, they've gone too far, we're not like them sort of situation now. Absolutely. Um, so in addition to that, there were, in addition to all of the things that I already said about Violet, there were allegations that she was giving amphetamines to younger players on her soccer team. Uh, and all of this, in the words of Anseba, added together to make Violet Morris, quote, exactly the opposite of what the FFSF had hoped when it was set up to produce delightful young ladies who just admired sport in an amateur way. Now, because of her prowess, they put up with her for a while, but when, in the middle of a soccer game, she... Uh, beat up a referee because he didn't agree with his calls. <laughs> this was in 1928. Um, they then refused to renew her license uh, amid complaints about her lifestyle, and that banned her from participating in the 1928 Summer Olympics. Uh, the agency cited her, quote, lack of morals, in particular her uh, decision to wear men's clothing and the punching of the referee. Um, the punching referee, fair enough, to be honest. In 1928, her auto racing license was also revoked on similar moral grounds. Um, and so Morris, in order to survive, started a car parts store in Paris uh, and began to build racing cars. Um, but that, of course, runs headlong into the Depression, and so the business went bankrupt. In 1930, she unsuccessfully sued the FFSF, claiming damages because she could no longer earn wages from competing as an athlete. Um, and during the trial, uh, what was used against her was that obscure Napoleonic ordinance from 1800 that forbid women to wear trousers. Um, one of the lawyers acting for the FFSF was uh, Yvonne Netter, who was an early and noted campaigner for French women's rights. And this is just an example of how oftentimes in any movement, it doesn't just have to be feminism, but this is also happens in the gay movement and many other places, um, you know, the, the sort of middle-class reformist campaigners will often... Uh, really viciously target people who they mm. feel are getting in their way of proving uh, that they're not a, um, that they're not a threat. Morris uh, said during her trial, quote, look around and see what you see. See the women with their knees crossed and then ask yourself, which is more immodest, their scanty dresses or my pants? Um, and during the trial, uh, or, or rather uh, after the trial, when the verdict came down against her, uh, Morris made a statement, uh, the contents of which uh, may begin to show a transformation in her personality or character, or maybe the bringing out of something that was already there, uh, but it's somewhat troubling. Uh, quote, we live in a country rotten by money and scandals, governed by phrases, scoundrels, and troublemakers. This country of small people is not worthy of its elders, not worthy to survive. One day its decadence will lead him to a rank of a slave. But if I am still there, I will not be one of the slaves. Believe me, that is not in my temperament. Okay, yeah, so you, yeah, I can see where this is going already. Yeah, I mean, I, it was originally in French, but you might say it sounded better in the original German. Um, in January 1933, uh, Morris moved into a houseboat called La Mouette, which was moored on the Seine uh, in northwest Paris near the Bois de Boulogne. Um, at this time, she decided to take up singing and became a successful enough cabaret singer that she was broadcast uh, on the radio. She was still at this time partnered with Yvonne Debris, and they invited Cocteau in 1939 to stay with them in the houseboat, and that is when uh, Cocteau wrote his play, uh, Les Monstres Sacrés. But before then, uh, her loyalties had begun to switch. In 1935, she agreed to become a spy for Nazi Germany and was rewarded with an invitation from Adolf Hitler, personal invitation, to be an honored guest at the 1936 Summer Olympics in Berlin. There were many reasons why the Nazis wanted Morris as a spy. Because she had operated a car parts business, she had access to vehicles and fuel. 
Um, she knew people throughout France from her sports career. She understood how the French army worked because she had driven ambulances near the front lines. And so she could report on what the French were doing. She understood the tank formations. Uh, and she was also obviously a large and intimidating, tough woman. After the games, she drove around France in the late 1930s, gathering information on the locations of French troops and the fortifications on France's, on France's northeastern border throughout the late 1930s, helping the Nazis develop, um, develop their plan for invasion. On Christmas Eve 1937, while having dinner with friends, uh, Robert and Simone de Tropevilla, uh, Morris encountered uh, a drunk and aggressive unemployed ex-legionnaire named Joseph Lecam. Um, Morris was able to calm the man down, but the following evening, Lecam decided to return to Morris's houseboat or, or to find Morris's houseboat. And another argument took place. Um, Lecam rushed to the boat, brandishing a knife, uh, Morris pushed Lecam several times before he lunged at her. She then pulled a revolver and fired four shots, uh, two into the air and two at him. He would later die in hospital. Morris was at this time arrested uh, and incarcerated at the La Petite Roquette prison. Uh, she was charged with homicide, tried uh, in March 1938, but was acquitted uh, when the court accepted her plea of self-defense. It's after the war begins um, and after Morris begins to uh, lose all of her friends who uh, are going to work in their resistance, uh, which she is very much not, um, that we start to uh, a little bit lose the trail of precisely what happens. There are many different stories. Um, she was tried in absentia after the war um, on the accusation of collaboration that she had become uh, a Nazi torturer uh, Anne Seba says that she had the nickname, quote, the hyena of the Gestapo, because she was supposed to have derived so much sadistic pleasure from torturing people and extracting information. Fucking hell. But in a new book, the historian Gerard de Cotans questions some of the accepted lore about Morris. Uh, these resistance trials were kept secret and written records were not kept for safety's sake. So it's possible that Morris was a victim of fear and hatred uh, prevailing in those days and her image and lifestyle made her somewhat of a scapegoat. Um, de Cortans wrote, uh, before he wrote his book about her, said that he couldn't have written the book um, if he thought that she was guilty of uh, some of the worst crimes. Uh, he said his maternal grandmother had fled from fascism, his paternal grandfather was in the resistance. He wouldn't write a book about people who tortured Jews or, or uh, mm -hmm. informed on Jews uh, or, or tortured people in the resistance um, and couldn't find uh, proof that she had ties to the Gestapo. Um, it is notoriously hard uh, in the immediate post-war period and, well, during the war and the post-war period to uh, get sort of accurate records on a lot of stuff because obviously during the war, a lot of people hid what they were doing on both sides. And in, in the immediate aftermath of the resistance, the, the nature of um, uh, retaliations, um, in some ways quite rightly, against uh, collaborators um, also made it sort of rife for like people both hiding their past and also false accusations, no? Absolutely. Um, according to uh, the writer Raymond Ruffin, um, she was very involved in some of the stuff uh, during the war. Apparently, one of her main responsibilities was to foil the operation of the Special Operations Executive, which was the British front organization that helped the resistance. Uh, he also suggests that as well as being a spy, she was also involved in torture. Uh, sourced black market petrol for the Nazis, ran a garage for the Luftwaffe, drove for the Nazi and Vichy, Nazi and Vichy hierarchy, and made huge profits from the black market sale of fuel confiscated by the German army. As a, a, a note, my, uh, my, my grandmother actually was in the special operations executive. It's nice to think of these two uh, extremely <laughs> dominant women facing off against each other across the channel. Well, your grandmother lived and Violet didn't. Yeah. Thankfully. And she won. Um, yeah. She won. Um, Marie-Joseph uh, Bonnet says that the driving was the limit of her collaboration uh, and says that no evidence exists to support Rufan's claim that Violet Morris was involved in spying or torturing, but that she was potentially a scapegoat considering her comments before the war and her sort of history of scandal. Uh, Bonnet also argues that we should view Morris through a trans lens. And I would like to say more about Bonnet's argument, but... Uh, this is the time when I'm going to come out and say that basically all of the book-length work on Morris is in French, which is a language I do not read. So I am synthesizing 
um, all of these different arguments out of various descriptions of these books and citations of these books in different articles that have been written. Um, so instead of being able to go deeply into Bonnet's argument, I'll instead talk a little bit about um, trans history and queer history and how you look at someone like this and, and what the kind of, um, what those different lenses can do and can be. The historian Susan Stryker writes that, quote, many people believe that gender identity is rooted in biology. Many other people understand that gender is more like language than like biology. That is, while they understand us humans to have a biological capacity to use language, they point out we are not born with a hardwired language pre-installed in our brains. Likewise, while we have a biological capacity to identify with and to learn to speak from a particular location in a cultural gender system, we don't come into the world with a predetermined gender identity. Um, I think with people like Violet Morris and really with anybody who um, lived before the categories of trans uh, and lesbian uh, or trans and gay uh, existed in the ways that they do now, before these things were as clear, um, whatever we do with a figure like Violet Morris, we are going to be unconsciously or consciously filtering her through an interpretive lens. Uh, there's no way to ever just, you can't, the past does not exist someplace to be gone back to uh, and looked at and then just communicated. You're trying to represent an unrepresentable thing. Um, I think the lens that you take when you do that has to be a lens for which you can make ethical uh, or, uh, and or a kind of methodological or interpretive justification. Um, and I can absolutely see uh, how and why it would be urgent to think Morris as a lesbian, to think Morris uh, through a trans lens, um, or to think Morris uh, through both. In a book called Gender and French Identity After the Second World War, the historian Kelly Ricciardi Colvin uh, goes into uh, the extent to which Morris's gender presentation uh, became part of the myth of her horror. She writes, quote, um, Morris rejected normative femininity through her espousal of violence and her assertion of superiority over French men. She broke the traditional French femininity in an extreme way. Um, as the newspaper L'Humanité reported during the liberation, quote, this Violette Morris, she was certainly an informant for the Nazis, a sort of monster hybrid. This creature incessantly wore men's clothes, made an exhibition of herself as a quote unquote champion of shot putting and weightlifting, and even had her breasts cut off to be able to appear more masculine. She put herself in the service of the Gestapo to be able to satisfy her sadistic instincts while torturing patriots. Similarly, the newspaper Le Figaro, uh, when describing her death, uh, referred to Morris as, quote, a hideous shrew who delivered hundreds of resistors to the Gestapo. Violet Morris was therefore, as uh, Colvin uh, argues, a monster uh, who had discarded her femininity in order to be sadistic. And this uh, served to rhetorically alienate Morris um, and women like German prince, prison guards, etc., from French society uh, to demonstrate that her behavior was unacceptable and had to be punished. Um, there is, however, Colvin argues, evidence that, that Morris did actually do some of these things. Um, there's uh, a woman who uh, remembered her interrogation at the hands of Morris as being, quote, sexually humiliating and excruciatingly painful and involved, uh, I'm not gonna go into the uh, exact details, but it involved uh, beating and, and whipping, etc. She was known in the resistance as La Terrible Violette Morris and the most obsessed of all the tortures. Um, another resistance member, uh, Suzanne Levrier, remembered her questioning by a Violette as uh, truly horrific, um, that she was shown someone that Violet had tortured in a, in a really awful and very bloody way and uh, threatened with torture herself she didn't, if she didn't... Um, report on this person or report on her connections to this person. Um, through this, Violet was apparently able to break several resistance cells. Uh, this is part of Ruffin's argument, which calls her, quote, the incontestable star of the Gestapo cell of the Rue de Saussier. So all of this is very contested. Um, and is, is there a reason I, not to believe their accounts, though? Um, not that I know. Um, but again, I would like to be able to read Bonnet's book before making that argument. And, and, uh, and the, the, the books that claim that she didn't do this, I would like to be able to read them more before evaluating it. But, um, 
what's interesting too here is the contested gender territory of the female spy, uh, right? Uh, as Colvin writes, quote, unlike the female torturer, the female spy did not necessarily abnegate her femininity, rather she weaponized it in order to bring out male weakness. In doing so, she represented a threat to all of France. If the French had universally resisted, as the resistance myth propagated at this time, then the female spy threatened and betrayed the French nation. The female spy thus embodies a kind of contamination in that she pollutes public space with her sexual manipulations. Um, and so it was certainly very important to uh, the resistance that Morris was a kind of uh, monster woman who had abrogated good patriotic femininity in order to collaborate with the invaders. Um, and that that was a picture that was developed based on her gender presentation. Um, and at the same time, it also seems likely to me that she actually did a lot of this sadistic, horrible stuff and was a rather oh. terrible human. So on the uh, 26th of April, uh, 1944, uh, she was driving the Bayeux family in her Citroën um, through uh, France. Uh, her car sputtered and came to a halt because earlier in the day, the engine had been tampered with by resistance fighters uh, who then emerged from a hiding spot and opened fire on the car and killed everyone. Um, it's claimed by some people that Morris was the target. It's claimed by others that it's not clear because she was driving a very sort of highly positioned uh, Vichy family. Um, her body riddled with bullets was taken to a morgue where it remained unclaimed for months until she was buried in an unmarked communal grave. And that's the story of Violet Morris. Thank you so much to all of you for listening to our show. We've now been downloaded more than 325,000 times, which is incredible. And we're so grateful for all of your support. And especially thanks to our patron listeners. Without your help, it really wouldn't be possible. It really wouldn't be. Um, and so we know you all know this, but we want to let you know that at our website, badgazepod.com, you can find a few very important things. One, you can find a link to our Patreon where you can support the show. Uh, second, you can find uh, some very beautiful T-shirts for sale. I'm wearing mine now, Hugh. Is it not lovely? Very nice. Uh, and you can also find, of course, an archive of all of our past episodes. Uh, we don't work with a media company. We don't put anything behind a paywall. We just rely on people who think that we're doing good work and who enjoy the show to uh, back that up with some support. And so we're really grateful to all of you who do. And we also understand that if you don't want to, times are tough. So you can also just completely keep listening. But uh, if you do want to support us, that's at badgazepod.com. Well, thanks, Ben. <clears throat> Well, thanks, Ben. I mean, there's there's a lot to go into there in terms of this this sort of, um, in some ways, very admirable early career in terms of um, in terms of just going for it, transgressing the gender norms in order to like live the life that she wanted to live, and and making in some ways these leaps for uh, for women athletes, and then this later sort of transformation to first of all a sort of fascist sympathizer, and then in all likelihood a fascist collaborator. Um. I think first, I'd just like to ask you more about, I guess, the um, the sports side of things. I mean, this is a sort of um, still a very contested ground now in terms of representations of uh, womanhood and what uh, what constitutes or who constitutes a woman within athletics. Now, I mean, when you were talking about it, my, the thing that sprung to mind immediately was um, the case of Casta Semenya. Um, Absolutely. Who, um, who is, is slightly different because I think that's very racialized, but in, there, there's still there's still something there about this um, uh, imposition of the, this idea of what a woman is, and then these women who don't fit into this uh, category of a woman, um, which because they somehow transgress an idea of sort of uh, white femininity, um, are really persecuted by by the sporting authorities. Absolutely, and I, I mean. Yes, I don't. I'm not going to argue that Violet Morris. I wouldn't argue. It's that you, no one should. That Violet Morris was the somehow the victim of uh, anti-black racism. Um, but I do think that it's impossible to understand the categories that um, that that uh, kept Morris uh, locked out, or that got Morris sort of locked out of, of women's competition, uh, without thinking about race, because race is a central part of eugenics, obviously, um, and. Uh, Eugenics are where we get these ideas about um, sort of proper breeding um, and and uh, and reproduction as the kind of goal uh, end goal uh, of the woman. Um, and I certainly think that this is where you see a very clear link between um, early twentieth century forms of uh, white 
middle class or upper middle class feminist endeavor and similar forms today, um, which similarly uh, exclude people who do not fit a very kind of narrow um, narrative about what about what kind of the woman quote unquote is. Yeah. Um, and that's where I see you think, I mean, that's where I think you see a, a really direct line between um, a really direct line between um, racist eugenicist white feminists of the uh, early 20th century and uh, racist transphobic uh, feminists of the early 21st. Right. Yeah. I immediately thought as well, um, when you're talking about it, about this this tweet that was that sort of went viral from a a, a transphobic f- white feminist of these four um, Chinese athletes, I believe, um, in which uh, the uh, f- these four women athletes, in which she sort of said "woman, man, man, man," and obviously, like they they, they were all cisgender women, um, but it was this imposition based upon um, body types about uh, abs, basically, like mu- muscle definition and abs where it was this projection of uh, what can and can't be uh, regarded as as a woman based upon exactly these, this same sort of racialized, um, uh, yeah, types. Right. And we haven't progressed in a lot of ways. And and the fact that, 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 that now women like Casta Semenya would be forced to um, uh, take testosterone suppressors in order to compete based upon, their bodies because their bodies are judged to be not not female right which is a which is not a standard that we apply to other bodies in sport i mean i think we assume that bodies in sport are you know to to put it frankly freakish right but no one tells michael phelps that he needs to you know cut off some of his lungs which are bigger than mine it Right. Like, you know, yeah. I don't get to go up to the, I don't get to go up to the, you know, Olympic diving team and say, Hey, you know, you have an extra bendy spine and you can do these back bends and I can't. So you have to wear a giant brace uh, and put, you know, 10 yeah. kilos of, of blubber and pads all around you so that you're the same shape as me so that we'll be the same amount good at this. But when, like it, comes, such a, when it comes to hormones and uh, then, then that does obviously now. Right. But what, but when it comes to hormones, right. So like, you know, the, the fact that Castor Semenya has a very unusual, not a very unusual, but a somewhat unusual body that enables her to uh, do certain things doesn't make her less of a woman. It doesn't make her less of an athlete and it shouldn't stop her from competing. That's the whole point of athletics is that people, like people train their bodies to, uh, you know, based on some level of natural capacity, train their bodies to do like truly incredible things, right? You know, no one should hack off Violet Morris's biceps any more than they should tell the Olympic weightlifters that they can't have big biceps. I mean, that's literally what they do. That's their job is to have big biceps, right? It's Castro Semenya's job to be able to run 800 meters faster than other people and she can do it. So it's like, yeah. Um, um, the other person I was really thinking of when you were talking about it, who is um, 100% not a bad gay, is uh, Jean Genet in terms of um, his relationship towards the resistance after the war and the way he conceptualized it as a queer man. Um, th- uh, it, uh, in this fantastic book, he wrote Fun- Funeral Rites, which is about desire for SS soldiers. And it's this extremely um, powerful, strange queering of the idea of um, French masculinity and the resistance and um, this myth that he saw emerging. And obviously, he he was coming from a position where he was uh, as a, as as a queer French man, uh, extremely anti-French. You know, he was anti-nationalist, and that he saw within the mythology of masculinity that was emerging from the um, from the resistance exactly or similar aspects around the creation of a nationalism or something. Do you think her um, her lesbian uh, identity, uh, which was so strongly adopted, was something that informed her? Um, adoption of a, of a sort of nationalist politics, I guess. I mean, I don't think she had a nationalist politics. I think she had an anti-nationalist politics. It seems to me like her collaboration had much more to do with hating France and wanting to do anything that fucked with France um, rather than um, rather than any kind of particular uh, love for the specific uh, 
you know, love for the specific kind of program of the Nazis. But there's this thing that you're saying about in her court case about talking about France having suffered a sort of de- degeneration and that she would never stand in the way of the French becoming slaves, which is not, which is definitely not the same as Genet's anti-nationalist politics, which is, which is no, the, it's the nation and everything I mean, the nation births is, is fundamentally poisoned within humanity. Well, because in a way it's like, uh, you know, an anti-nationalist politics that only focuses on how shitty a specific nation is, but thinks that other nations might be better, uh, isn't doing its job, right? It's not just that France is like uniquely awful, it's that the whole problem is nationalism. Yeah. Right? Um, but she seemed, to, she seemed to have an idea of like a, a pure France that once existed that had been corrupted, which is, which is deeply nationalist, no? Which is, the, which is exactly the, the, the same ideology that read, led to the, the birth of the Nazi party and, and, and the fact that the Nazis could gain so much support was this idea that, that Germany had been, been corrupted in, in that case by communists and Jews. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I think it's also in a way, maybe in a way similar to Stein, um, her kind of... Um, masculine gender presentation leads her to uh, cathect to and adopt some actually kind of misogynist uh, ideas about the body and the nation uh, and uh, you know how gender works and so yeah I think that's absolutely it um, yes well it's a fascinating life story of like lots of strange um you know, strange avenues of, of thought and interrogation you could go down. Um, and the other thing that I love is to imagine her encountering um, Gertrude Stein, right? Either in the artistic demimonde of the 1920s or with some Vichy's in the, uh, or with some Vichy's in the, um, in the, uh, in Vichy France. In, in Vichy France. Yeah. I wonder what, uh, uh, what Josephine Baker was, whether she knew at the time, whether there was, there was these these former lovers in some way became uh, adversaries in in the war directly, or if not. I mean, I bet she did because uh, Morris's participation, as I said, uh, was um, very well known. I mean, and it was written about in these in these major newspapers. Uh, I would assume that Baker just uh, was <laughs> very glad to have been dumped by. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, we've all had some terrible exes, but that takes a biscuit. It does take the biscuit. Um, so, Ben, um, I think I know what you're going to say about this, but Violet Morris, good gay, bad gay, good not gay, bad not gay? Uh, real gay and real bad. Um, <laughs> yeah. I see no reason not to believe the testimonies of named resistance fighters who describe being tortured by her. Um, and I also uh, think that she was real gay. So that's uh, where I would put her down. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be much argument about it, to be honest. Um, I don't know who would disagree. So if people want to know more about, um, about Violet Morris, you said there was some difficulty because um, all the book-length works are in French. Is there anywhere else people could find information if they don't speak French? Yes. Uh, and what I'm going to do is just provide uh, links to all these things in the show notes. And I'll also provide the names of the books so that people can uh, people can read them. Um, there's an article in Haaretz uh, by Shlomo Papirblat. Um, there is uh, an article, uh, an article entry on uh, for her in the uh, wonderful German source, uh, Femme Bio, Frauenbiographie Forschung, like a biographical research on women. Um, there's Susan Stryker's Transgender History, which I used. Um, there's that Kelly Corvin book about uh, women and femininity in the French Resistance. Um, and there are several other articles as well. So I'll just, um, I'll just sort of provide links to all of it uh, in, the, in the show notes. I think that's easier. And um, with that, we bring our fourth season to a close. Um, thank you so much for sticking with us during this uh, strange pandemic winter. We're recording this. Uh, earlier than you're hearing it, and I can't imagine what's going on right now in the world as this is being beamed into your into your ears. But I hope that you're uh, staying safe, uh, and I know that Hugh does too. And uh, we're going to uh, give you another season around the normal time as uh, as winter turns to spring as it must. And and uh, hopefully by then, Hugh, you and I will actually be able to uh, meet up and do this in person. 
Yeah, let's hope so. And also we've got some good news, which is um, we've started writing um, a book based on a podcast, which um, hopefully will be coming out sometime in the next year or probably two. Um, so stay tuned for more information about that. Yes, we are very excited. And so with that, um, I can let you know that uh, you can find the show on Twitter at Bad Gays Pod. You can find me on Twitter at Ben Writes Things. You can find me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy. And you can visit our website at badgayspod.com for t-shirts, episode archive, Patreon, uh, just like we say every time. And with that, until next season, we wish you farewell. Goodbye. Bad, 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 bad,